Barefooting with Sierra uses Buzzsprout. Just start with the equipment you already have and a quiet space. Add Buzzsprout and your podcast is ready to go. You'll get a great looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to show how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and helps support the show. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout and get your message out to the world. Hello and welcome to the 24th episode of Barefooting with Sierra. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist, and I have been living without shoes since 2010. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. In this episode, I interview civil rights journalist Polly Ewing. I'm going to break this podcast up into four parts, novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my professional life. I will give you updates on what I am working on, let you know about any new works you can see, and keep you in the know about when I do free book giveaways on Amazon. Let's get started. First up, novels. To celebrate Valentine's Day, I released that flash fiction fantasy romance piece I wrote when I was dealing with writer's block a few weeks ago. You can find that on Amazon in ebook format only. It's called Under the Light of the Full Moon, Matthew's Secret. It does verge into erotica, so it's that something you're uncomfortable with, that's fine, give this one a pass. If the thought of a werewolf erotica excites you, though, definitely check it out. In novel news today, CBC released a list of the notable books by Black Canadians to read in 2021. There are 25 books. Here's the list. Gutter Child by Jael Richardson. Butter Honey Pig Bread by Francesca Equiasi. The Night Piece by Andre Alexis. Willie by Willie O'Ree and Michael McKinley. Saga Boy by Antonio Michael Downing. Eat Salt, Gaze at the Ocean by Junie Dessel. Black Matters by Afua Cooper and Wilfred Rousert. Burning Sugar by Cicely Bell Blaine. Word Problems by Ian Williams. Finish the Sentence by Leslie Roach. The Response of Weeds by Bertrand Bickerseth. The Gospel of Breaking by Gillian Christmas. The Disgraphist by Kenesia Lubrin. I Am Still Your Negro by Valerie Mason John. Dominoes at the Crossroads by Kai Kello. The Midnight Bargain by C.L. Polk. The Skin We're In by Desmond Cole. They Said This Would Be Fun by Eternity Martis. Shame on Me by Tessa McWatt. Changing the Face of Canadian Literature, edited by Dane Swan. From My Mother's Back by Gnocchi Wayne. On Property by Ronaldo Walcott. Until We're Free, edited by Rodney Diverless, Sandy Hudson, and Cyrus Marcus Ware. Angry Queer Somali Boy by Mohammed Abdul Karim Ali and Ties That Tether by Jane Icaro. In an interview with the OC Register about her upcoming novel Remote Control, Nedi Okorofar reflected on the coronavirus pandemic and how it affected her writing. Regarding the pandemic itself, she jokingly said, Didn't you all see this coming? You really didn't see that coming? Come on, it's been written about how many times? It's amazing how much they got right. Okorofar writes Afrofuturism novels, and Hulu recently announced an upcoming adaptation of her novel Binti. Now on to comics. I started a position as an associate publisher for a community magazine this week, something I'm absolutely loving. 
The company that produces the magazines is well-established and has been publishing their community magazines in Edmonton since 2015, but I'm launching one in a neighborhood they haven't published in before. So I'm having to bring the community together, get everyone on board for the first issue. It's a mammoth undertaking to get it done by my deadlines, and it's exhausting, but I love it. This is a dream opportunity for me, and I'm fueled by the desire to see this thing go to print. That being said, I'm kind of having an issue with work-life balance at the moment, giving more of myself than is probably sustainable in the long term in order to get this first issue to launch. So today's comic is a sleepy petunia falling asleep at her desk. You can see that on Instagram at World of Possums. In comic news today, Terry Stawar published an opinion piece today on treasure hunting where he recounts coming home from school one day to find that his older brother had traded his entire comic book collection for the neighbor's collection. Stawar collected for value and had the original Iron Man and Spider-Man books, but the neighbor collected to read, mostly Archie's. The original Spider-Man books are now worth over a million dollars, and Stawar still has nightmares about coming home that day to find his priceless collection gone. You can read the whole piece on newsandtribune.com. The newest comic from Pornsac Peciote, The Good Asian, is a detective story that explores the racism Asian Americans faced in the 1930s. Detective Edison Hark is on the trail of a killer in Chinatown. The creators say it wasn't so much creating what they wanted to read, but rather what they wished existed. The Good Asian's first issue will be available May 5th. Alright, next up is journalism. Every day in February, I'm going to highlight one influential black history figure. Today's Black History Month highlight is the musician and actor best known by his stage name, Q-Tip. Q-Tip, also known as Kamal Farid, the Lone Ranger, and the Last Zulu, was born Jonathan William Davis on the 10th of April, 1970. At the age of nine, he began, began rapping, and at the age of 12, he began recording his own tapes. While in high school, he befriended Africa Baby Bam, who gave him the nickname Q-Tip. He began his music career in 1988 as a backup vocalist and producer. In 1989, his friends Africa Baby Bam and Fife Dog signed their group A Tribe Called Quest with Jive Records. Q-Tip was their producer and lyricist. He made his acting debut in 1993 in the movie Poetic Justice, which also featured Tupac performing a song Q-Tip wrote. After A Tribe Called Quest broke up, Q-Tip began a solo music career, releasing his first single, Get Involved, in 1999. He continued to release several albums over the 2000s, and has worked with great names in the industry, Pharrell Williams, Demi Lovato, and Elton John. In 2012, the source named him number 20 on their list of top 50 lyricists of all time. In 2016, he became the artistic director for hip-hop culture at the Kennedy Center, and in 2018, he began teaching jazz and hip-hop at New York University. Now for today's interview with social justice journalist, Paula Ewing. Hi, Paula. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Please tell the listeners a little about yourself, where you're from, and what you do. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Sierra. My name is Paula Lehman Ewing. I'm originally from New York City, and I currently reside in the Bay Area of California. I was a journalist for a very long time. I sort of morphed into a social documentarian role where I document the modern civil rights movement and people fighting for restoration of rights. And I'm currently writing my first book about that experience and the people that I've met along the way. It's called Reimagining the Revolution. 
roadmaps for the modern civil rights movement. Fantastic. And so you wrote that book, Reimagining the Revolution. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So I, it's still in the works. I'm finally like getting down to writing and getting the, um, I have the first three chapters written, but the meat of the book is profiles. And so um, I know your listeners can't see me, but um, I am not Black. Um, and this is a book about racial justice. It's important to put the people who are directly impacted by that at the forefront of this movement. So my book is really a platform to profile and tell the stories for people who are directly impacted and really doing something to pave new roads towards racial justice. So we saw a huge outpouring of support for Black Lives Matter here in the United States last summer, but it looked a lot like protests from the 1970s or uh, the 1940s. They keep going back and it seems like people always go and start marching, but the path that we're marching on hasn't yielded the kind of results that we're looking for. Again, here in the United States, we have the largest population of incarcerated people in the world. So what I'm interested in is people who are paving new paths um, and people who are going beyond just reforms. And those are people who are considered abolitionists, people who believe that the system that has oppressed black and brown people in the United States for 400 years isn't going to just turn around and start being nice to them. And so they want to think of a new system. Um, So the people that I profile in the book are um, every one from kind of original freedom fighters like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore to uh, new headliners like Killer Mike, who is a rapper for Run the Jewels, um, but he's also an activist in the Bank Black movement in Atlanta. Um, And then I have a couple of guys who are actually incarcerated um, because there's a a guy, Glenn Martin, who is not incarcerated, but he has a saying that the people closest to the problem are closest to, to the solution. And so when you're talking about abolition and a world without prisons, it's really, uh, I think, important to highlight the work of people who are in prison. And there are actually these two guys who are in prison that are doing amazing things, considering the fact that the only liberation they have is that of their minds and not their bodies. That sounds like an awesome book, and I can't wait to read it. So it sounds like you're more elevating voices of people of color that rather than writing about it yourself, because as you mentioned, you're not a person of color and therefore wouldn't really be qualified to write on race relations. Right. So my qualifications are basically that I have written about criminal justice from every angle I can think of. So I started as a reporter. Um, and then actually, it's kind of interesting there. It's it's sort of a trend with criminal justice reporters that not a lot of us stay reporters, because it's very difficult to remain objective when you start looking at the atrocities that are happening. So I left, I actually became a communications manager for a progressive district attorney, uh, Chase Boudin here in San Francisco. And then I, sorry, I'm also a mom. (laughs) Um, And then I realized that trying to fix the system from the inside out wasn't really the path for me. So I hopped across the bay to Oakland and uh, joined a nonprofit group called uh, All of Us or None. And All of Us or None is a grassroots organization fighting for the restoration of civil and human rights for currently and formerly incarcerated individuals. And so my point of entry is really I've looked at this from every angle. And that experience has taught me a few very important things. First, my position as a white ally is to use what I do best, which is in my case, storytelling, to elevate people who are directly impacted. Um, You see something like 
the felony disenfranchisement in Florida. So in 2018, Florida had Amendment A, which restored voting rights like 1.4 million people in Florida. And the reason why they were able to do that is because, and I spoke to Desmond Mead, who headed that campaign and is formerly incarcerated and voted for the first time in 2020. The reason why they were able to succeed is because they put people before politics. And that's really what I'm going to encourage readers to do is not to look at this as I'm some liberal shill, but it's more, it's not about blue and red, like think beyond the two options that no one seems to like very much and, um, and try to get outside of that. So that's sort of the perspective that I bring as the author and narrator of reimagining the revolution. But then these people that I'm going to be profiling are not only super interesting people, but they have amazing stories. You know, we talk a lot about identity politics and like how our past informs the way that we fight for our rights. The people that I profile have such deep and rich stories in themselves that I'm really excited to share those stories in a very in-depth way. And then also share how they have become architects of this movement um, that I think people are really going to be taking seriously. That sounds awesome. Definitely caring about people over politics is the big one. It seems like over and over again, I'm telling not just Republican and Democrat or up in Canada where I am, conservative and liberal friends, like, I don't know how to get through to you that it's just about caring about people. That's how I vote is about caring about people. I'm an independent politically. I don't care for political parties. I care about people. And watching police kill unarmed Black people on the news over and over again has just been devastating. Our society is so broken. How do we even create what we need to get to a point of equity? It's almost like a rhetorical question, right? So I I almost feel... So first, reimagining the revolution is not meant to be prescriptive. So I do sort of keep a journalistic edge in that I'm here to provide a platform, some information, I'm going to be providing historical context, some some stories, um, untold histories, and that kind of stuff. And I've done a lot of research, because that's, I just sort of geek out on research. But it's, I'm not here to say that this road is better than this road is better than this road, better than this road. I'm just, the, the only opinion I have is to look at some new roads in general. And then in terms of the people who have thought about those answers, when we talk about how the police force is systemic racism, uh, has a problem with systemic racism, that isn't just saying that like a lot of police kill Black people. Um, it's saying that like deep in, within the body of law enforcement, and this goes beyond police, it's a corrections officers, parole officers, probation officers, the whole body of law enforcement are here, especially now, um, ICE, uh, the immigration police that we have. You can't have that system of controlling other people without this idea of subhumanization and so and, and dehumanization. And so at the core of what most of the people that I'm profiling believe is that like the system is broken beyond repair. The idea, you know, I I, um, mentioned Angela Davis. She has a saying that radical, she uses the very, you know, the Latin root of the word radical, which is to grab something at the root. In other words, like this system is so broken, it needs to be uprooted and replanted in more fertile soil. And I think that's true. And and a lot of the approach is investing in communities because communities, if you 
think about being neighborly. They sort of, they thrive on a sense of neighborliness, a sense of love, a sense of embrace versus police, which sort of survive on a sense of control and fear. That's really what these alternatives are. Um, It's a system where people, rather than being controlled by punitive measures, they are rehabilitated through things like restorative justice programs and not treating every one of our ills from addiction, mental illness, and homelessness to criminality with the same prescription, which is cages. For sure. And I love that you mentioned that community aspect, which with my new position as the publishing director of a community magazine, I'm really getting to see neighbors reaching together and coming to get to know each other and really just interacting together as a community Mm -hmm. and being involved with each other and supporting each other and loving each other. It just seems like police just want to send people to jail. Honestly, like some of the laws that are on the books are so, I hate to say it, but they're stupid. Yeah. Like uh, up until very recently in most places in North America, you could go to jail for possessing a tiny bit of dried plant. Right. Which is just dumb. Some people are still in cages for possessing dried plant. Yes. Because because a lot of the laws haven't applied retroactively and almost none of the federal laws caught up. So people in federal prison are still sitting inside for things that are completely legal in the states where they are in prison. (laughs) Yes. It's... There's a lot that needs to change. And yes, while we've we've tried going about it by changing laws and being peaceful, and it's we've done this for how many centuries now? <laughs> and it's not working, obviously. I think the idea that people are should get used to is that reforms aren't just non-working, not working. They're also normalizing what's not okay. So the reforms are saying, you know, by saying, um, you know, we're going to do this to decarcerate nonviolent offenders. And your listeners can't see, I just put quotes around nonviolent. You have to look deeper to what the categories of nonviolent offenders are, because most violent offenders offenders have not committed a violent crime. They might have been in the vicinity or they might have something that could be used as a weapon, but they didn't use it as a weapon, but there were categories of the violent offender. And these are just ways to tack on years to a sentence and have this, you know, conviction rate that a lot of district attorneys are looking for. So so the idea that reforms work is one problem. The idea that, you know, reforms aren't working, you can go a little bit further and say they're not just not working, they're normalizing things like having people who smoked weed incarcerated because some law because now that some laws are catching up, they don't apply retroactively. So that's what for sure. And definitely that the the so-called violent offenders, many of them are not actually violent because there is a law in California that if police assume you are in a gang, even if you were just arrested for vandalism, your sentence gets upped to violent offender because police assume you're in a gang, which could be something as innocent as hanging out with a group of black teenagers, which if those are your friends, that's not a gang. Stop being yeah. ridiculous. And in New York, if you happened to be in the car when someone committed a murder, you're considered an an accessory to the murder. Even if you didn't know about it, had nothing to do with it, you're an accessory to the murder. And therefore you're a violent offender. You are now in jail for murder when you had nothing to do with it. And these people are not guilty of crimes. Well, vandalism. Okay, sure. Like have them clean the sign. Like don't put them in jail as a violent offender. Right. And I think even like, let's say that you have, like I'm going to make an unpopular argument for decarcerating violent offenders. What is the point of prison? Because I thought it was 
to be re rehabilitated. And so if we treat each crime like the worst mistake of your, of your life is going to define the rest of your life, I know for me, if I took that personally, if I thought about the worst mistake I made in my life and thought I had to be punished for it forever, and by punishment, I mean loss of liberation, loss of, you know, these the people who are incarcerated now haven't seen their families since last March because all the prisons have been in lockdown, like because of maybe a mistake that they made when they were 17. Maybe they made it when they were 30. Maybe they made it when they were 40. The point is that like we are losing sight of the fact that this is supposed to be a rehabilitative program when really it just seems like a timeout and sometimes for a permanent amount of time. And studies have shown that treating people like that causes people to resort to crime after they're released. So the idea that prisons keep us safe isn't a very good argument because it's also not true. You have to mobilize and get that change put in in a different way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's that's great that you've figured out a way to elevate voices who have these different ideas. It's been so great chatting with you. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more? I started a couple, a Facebook page and an Instagram page for Reimagining the Revolution. Um, it's just at Reimagining the Revolution. Um, and I, I put everything there from Black History Fact to updates about the book. I um, usually talk about how I got to the table and different people that I'm talking to. Um, sometimes I read letters that I get from prison. Um, so I definitely encourage people to go there. Um, I also have a Kickstarter for the book that is collecting funds until March 17th. Um, so just look for Reimagining the Revolution on Kickstarter. Yeah, that's how you can find it. Excellent. Well, best of luck to you. And I look forward to reading your book when it's done. Yay. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's really been a pleasure. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. It was finally warm enough today that I could actually go out barefoot for longer than a few minutes. And it was so nice. I went to the post office and drove around doing errands barefoot. Penino Tamano Shata, who came to Israel as a barefoot refugee in Ethiopia when she was three years old and is the first black woman to serve as a minister in Israel's federal government, told Jerusalem Post today that the country is working to reopen its borders for flights. She is strongly opposed to the current closure of the airport and voted to reopen it. Since COVID vaccinations started in January, Israel has seen its daily new cases reduced by half, but they are still seeing over 4,000 new cases per day across the country. Ben Liebig Jr., the son of a former teacher in the Philippines, has founded a school for Filipinos living abroad in the United Arab Emirates, Salfil Ras Al-Kaima. In his commencement speech, he recalled how his mother would have flip-flops in her classroom for her students because they were so poor that they couldn't afford shoes, and boiled eggs and chicken for the children who came to school with only rice for their lunch. His goal for his school is to teach people the skills they need to overcome poverty. That's all for today's show. Due to my new work schedule, this podcast is going down from mostly daily episodes to weekly ones. I've really enjoyed doing this as a daily show, but it's time to give my full focus to getting the magazine launched. I'll be back on Sunday with an interview with Robert Ginsburg, founder of the Forever Family Foundation. Thanks so much for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at sierrathebarefoot, on Facebook at sierrathebarefootgirl, on Twitter at sierrabarefoot, and on TikTok at Sierra is Barefoot. You can follow the podcast itself on Instagram at Barefooting with Sierra. All of my books are available on Amazon. My comics are available on Instagram at World of Possums and Patreon.com slash PossumFeet. Thank you to Legion X for the intro and outro music. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And please share it with a friend if you've enjoyed it. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.